Uh, Let's pray this morning before we step into Matthew chapter 5. Father, thank you for the people here in this church. And thank you for Jesus who unites us. For your word upon which we stand. For the gospel that in which we live. uh, For giving us life and hope and peace and joy. Lord, we thank you so much. Uh, Father, I pray this morning as we talk for a little while about these verses in Scripture that you would just shine your light into our hearts and minds and bring your word to life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I did my Matthew reading this week out of the New Living Translation. That was fun. It's actually a really good translation. It's, it's got a couple issues, but I like it a lot. Um, and I hope that you're enjoying. Keep, keep plugging away, reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7 once or twice a week. And just let God's word just keep washing over your heart and your mind as you do. Um, man, the Sermon on the Mount is, is amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine for a moment if everyone in the United States who calls themselves a Christian lived a life fully committed to learning, understanding, and, and following the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? It would turn our nation upside down. It would be radical change. You know, it would bring a level of lifestyle that would, it would rock our world, and, and yet that's exactly what it's supposed to do. So let's just start here as we read it and learn it. I, I think some are working to memorize portions of it. Allow God to bring a radical change to us so that we would be remarkably different. Last week, we looked at the first four of the Beatitudes. Those four tend to focus more on our, our attitudes toward God. Today, we're going to look at the next four, the last four of the Beatitudes that focus a little bit more on our attitudes toward one another and toward the people around us in the world. The first one focuses on the attitude of mercy that we would have the remarkably different attitude of being merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Think for a moment about what it means to show mercy. Of course, the first thought in my mind is, with growing up with my brothers or on the playground, you know, someone's got someone's arm cranked behind their back and they're yelling, mercy, mercy. What does it mean to show mercy? As we look at this word the way Matthew uses it in this sermon throughout the book of Matthew and in the New Testament, there are two components to mercy that stood out to me. One has to do with the idea of compassion. Giving care for the weak In Psalm 41, we read, Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him. And I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Mercy has to do with seeing someone who is weak and having regard for them having compassion for them just as God saw me when I was weak and had regard for me and compassion for me. 
and extended his love and care to me. We extend that to other people. The other piece of mercy, besides just compassion for the weak, is, has to do with judgment and the way we might want to judge the people around us. Not judging harshly, even if I have the right to. Mercy is the opposite of that. In James chapter 2, he reminds us, by the way, James, the book of James, I think, is James teaching in an application way the Sermon on the Mount to his church. So there's a lot of practical teaching that's connected here. And he says to them, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think we all know this. We all know we should show mercy to people. We shouldn't judge them. We shouldn't be critical and harsh. Unless you hurt me. Because if you really hurt me, you're going to get it with both barrels. That is the spirit of the age today. I know that you know someone who is, is harsh and critical and judgmental of someone else. Maybe someone who was abusive to them in the past. Or someone who is a toxic person. They don't deserve mercy. They deserve to be cut off and judged. God is calling us to be people who show mercy. Because God didn't treat us that way. I'm a toxic, abusive person. I'm a sinner. And God treats me with mercy. And he calls us to give mercy to the people around us. To enjoy and relish in his mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And I'm so glad to be able to enjoy the mercies of God. Amen? Merciful, God blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The second attitude that he describes to us is this idea of being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Being pure in heart, I don't like that one because I think, well, how can I be pure in heart? I still struggle with sin. I struggle with impurity. Could I ever measure up to that? I don't think pure in heart means we're sinless or that we never sin anymore. Uh, we know from Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. It's in the present continuous tense. All have sinned and keep on falling short of the glory of God. And we know from John chapter, 1 John chapter 1 that if anyone says he is without sin, he's deceived himself. Truth's not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Where does, where does it come from? Where does a pure heart come from? It's a gift that God keeps giving us. As we confess our sins to him and open our hearts to him, he washes us clean. That's where our purity in the Lord comes from. But I think in this, in the idea here, the, the pure in heart is really a focus on a single-minded devotion 
to the Lord. On being fully devoted to him, not being distracted or partially or half-heartedly devoted to the Lord. It's having this full heart of devotion on God first. As we look in the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and that church was a mess. They had a lot of issues and problems. One of them was they lacked a pure devotion to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I promised you, the church, to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived and by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. God has called us to have a single-mindedness toward him. Our Christian culture in America is not pure in heart. Our Christian culture means that we take some of what we like about church and Jesus and good morals and we add that to our life and we add other things that we like too. But there's this lack of awareness of what it means to actually live for Jesus. To put God first and give him the only space on the throne of our hearts. That's pure of heart. In the Old Testament, Job gives us a great model of what it means to be pure in heart. He says in Job 19, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. How my heart, oh, he said, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Blessed is the pure in heart, for he will see God. It's this desire to see God, to be focused on him, to be standing before him. This desire to see God motivates us to stay faithful to him, to stay focused on him, to, to keep him in the center of our affections, to keep us pure in heart. And that's something we choose to keep coming back to every day. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. How's your heart today? Is it focused on the Lord? If it is, nurture that. If it's focus is off on something else or distracted or burdened by sin, come back to the Lord through confession. And echo David's prayer, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The third remarkable attitude that, I want, that, that comes up in this list of the Beatitudes is Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. The peacemakers. How many of you grew up and maybe it was in your family or maybe it's in your group of friends? You kind of know which person the peacemaker was. The one who would like try to keep some level of calm. 
The one who would try to maybe, maybe it was really annoying as if it was a sibling, or maybe it was you, like insert themselves between two people who are fighting and try to help them get along. Can you relate to that? Oftentimes God calls us to be peacemakers, but we don't do it very well. We don't know how to do it. I found myself in that position a number of times of feeling like I should make a difference here, but not knowing how to do it. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Where does that come from? Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. All peacemaking comes from God. You see, God is in conflict with a lot of people right now. Did you know that? Anyone with, with sin that hasn't been dealt with at the foot of the cross is in conflict with God. God's in conflict with most people on earth right now. A lot of times people don't realize it or aren't thinking about him, but that's true. And so God, but yet even in the midst of conflict with us, God loved us so much that he sent his only son to be our peacemaker, to come and make a way to resolve that which stood between us, the barrier of sin, so that we can be reconciled to God. And if, if you and I are here today saying, yes, I've experienced that, have you experienced reconciliation with God through Christ? That would not be a rhetorical question this time. Any, anybody else or am I alone? Yeah, all right. Thank you. Two of us have experienced reconciliation with God <laughs> through Christ. We're just going to preach evangelism today. If we have experienced that, then we have been given a ministry of reconciliation because we know what it's like. We know that joy. And so we take that, and anytime we try to, there's two different kinds of reconciliation we push for. One is between God and people. It's called evangelism. There's hope. The other kind of peacemaking we do is, is when two people are in conflict, and we bring that same hope. It's the gospel that's our model and our example of what we can do. There's two ways we do it poorly. Um, one sometimes is called peace faking instead of peacemaking. Peace faking is conflict avoidance, right? I don't really like conflict, so I'm going to pretend everything is fine and never raise the thing that's driving me nuts. I'll keep that stuffed inside. Or, you know, that one person who is the source of it, I'm just going to avoid them. Have you ever found yourself just walking or taking a different route, avoiding someone? It's peace faking, Lacking the courage to speak the truth in love when we need to. The other type of poor peacemaking we do is, could be called peacebreaking. That's when we like conflict a little bit too much. Oh, there's conflict. I'm going to get in that, right? I'm going to pick a side and fight along with. We take an adversarial approach to our differences. And we jump in there because we like that. Um, and that, neither of those leads toward reconciliation. Uh, how many of you 
tend to be more of a peacemaker, you avoid conflict. Yeah? How many of you tend to be a peacebreaker? You love it, and you want to get in there and fight it out. It's interesting. If I ask that question in New Jersey or New York, everybody's like, yeah, I love it. And you look awful today. You know, just jumping right in. Up here in the Midwest, people are like, I'm not even going to answer the question. <laughs> the Bible gives us way more help to help us learn how to be peacemakers than, we, than I ever knew or thought. In fact, as I've gone back through and just keep reading the Bible, I'm surprised at how much of it is, meant to, is, is here to address conflict between people who claim to know God. It's crazy. Just New Testament alone, the book of Matthew has a lot to say. From here, blessed are the peacemakers, it goes on, and a lot of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with resolving broken relationships. We get into the book of Acts, Acts 6 and Acts 15. We find the elders of the church having to get together because there's conflict in the church and figure out how to resolve it and help people move forward. The book of 1 Corinthians, there's at least a dozen known conflicts in that church, and that book addresses them all. It's crazy. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all talk about um, the, the importance of reconciliation with one another and conflict in the church. First Timothy, First Thessalonians, talk about how do we deal with people who are divisive. It's all through the rest of the New Testament and this having the courage to step in and try to help people experience, take the gospel that reconciles us with God and bring the gospel into these relationships with one another is what peacemaking is all about. Uh, I remember a church where a pastor came into conflict with an elder. The pastor was a really young guy. The elder was quite a bit older, but they had a sweet relationship, and their conflict was so painful, the pastor quit and left the ministry. Um, and just being able to come alongside of them and get to know them both and bring them into the word of God. And then sitting down together, we talked about what was it like to go through those experience, experiences. How did you feel? Uh, what was going on in your heart? And allow them to, to begin to have a, a biblical, grace-saturated conversation. It was really cool to see them confess sins to each other, forgive one another, and experience complete restoration in their relationship. It can happen. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Then the, the, the final one that's mentioned in the Beatitudes is the remarkably different attitude of the persecuted. How we can act and respond when we are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a ministry called Open Doors that tracks statistics about persecution, and they tell us that uh, th over 340 million Christians live in places that are hostile where they experience persecution. I can't even wrap my mind around that. 
They tell us that just in the past 12 months, in the past year, almost 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith because they were Christians. In the past year, 4,500 churches and Christian buildings were, were targeted, assaulted, or destroyed around the world. Over 4,000 believers were arrested or detained or sentenced or imprisoned. That feels really f- like foreign, doesn't it? I mean, we know of an th- incident here and there maybe, but it feels so far away to us. I've always felt like knowing that kind of thing happens somewhere else, I've always felt more of a connection and conviction from this, this verse in Hebrews Chapter 12, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Like, it's somewhere between we, we are blessed to live in a country that has freedom and religious freedom and a lot of tolerance. That's great. And we also tend to be so wishy-washy, nobody cares about our faith. And we kind of live in this space where both of those things tend to be true And we can feel really disconnected from most Christians through the history of Christianity who faced a hard time for giving their lives to Jesus. I I remember one school teacher in Iowa when I lived there, and he would go on and on about how he was being persecuted in the school. He worked in a public school, and, oh, they're persecuting me for my faith, and I'm just trying to help these kids point kids to Jesus, and I would ask questions. Well, tell me about that. What is it that you're doing? And I kind of found out he was like defiantly putting up obnoxious Christian posters in places where he wasn't supposed to. And I'm like, you're not being Christian persecuted for your faith. You're being being disciplined (laughs) because you're insubordinate at work. I mean, there's a little bit of a difference here, dude. Um, it's hard for us to figure out how do we take our solidarity to Christ and interpret when people don't like that around us. When we are persecuted, there's blessing in it. He goes on and, and emphasizes this a little more because people who have been truly persecuted need more encouragement. I think that's why he expands on this last beatitude a little bit. And he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a hard one. Because I think most of us have probably experienced more pain and hardship from other Christians than we have from non-Christians who don't like Jesus. And yet when I look through, he says in the same way, the, the prophets, these were the people of God persecuting the prophets. I mean, the Bible is filled with stories of people who were harassed for just trying to follow, follow God's ways. From Moses, it's crazy God's own people kept revolting against him. David experienced that. Most of the prophets were killed. 
Jesus was treated badly for being Jesus. His disciples, most of them were killed. You can go on and on about the hardships that people have faced. And every once in a while, it's good for us to remember that suffering isn't some awful thing that we go through. It's a place of fellowship with Christ. I'm reminded that Paul says, I just want to know Jesus. I want to know the joy of his resurrection, but I also want to know, this, know him in the suffering that he experienced. When life is hard, you're in good company. Just cling to Christ and hold on to him. I hope these beatitudes have been encouraging and challenging to you. Sometimes when I, I find a teaching like this in the Bible and I really want to understand it, sometimes what I'll do, this may not always be a good idea, but sometimes it's interesting, is I'll take the, the truth and I'll just flip it upside down. What would this sound like if it was exactly the opposite? Because if there's truth in it, it'll be true both ways. What, what would it sound like if we flipped these upside down? So I tried to stay true to the meaning, but reverse it and came up with the bad attitudes that we could have of the kingdom instead of the beatitudes. If we flip them, they might sound like this. Instead of blessed, what's the opposite of blessed? Cursed. Cursed are the self-confident, for theirs is eternity in hell. Cursed are those who never mourn, for they will receive no comfort when they do. Cursed are the bullies, for they, all they have will be taken away. Cursed are those who think they're good enough already, for they will find themselves empty. Cursed are the judgmental, for in the same way they will be judged. Cursed are those with idols in our heart, for they can't see God. Cursed are the peace fakers and the peace breakers, for they will be called strangers to God. Cursed are those who are no different than the crowd, for theirs is eternity in hell. Cursed are you when no one notices Jesus in your life. Grieve and wail, when, for you have no reward in heaven. pretty sobering to flip that and look at it from a different perspective. Jesus calls us to remarkably different attitudes, and so this morning as we conclude this section of Scripture, I'd like us to just put our hearts and minds into the word, the words that Jesus said. So I want to do a reading one more time of the the final portion, and I'd like you to stand with me as we read the Beatitudes to wrap up this section. And I'd like us to do this as a responsive reading. So the words in yellow, uh, let's all read together, and then I'll read the rest of it. Would you read out loud with me? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the weak, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, thank you for these incredible blessings that you bestow on us when we give our whole heart to Jesus. This is a high calling. Uh, Lord, we fall short of these things, but what remarkable attitudes you call us to have. And what a way to shine your light in this world. Help us, Lord, to continue to soak this in, to continue to become more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.